The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the book of the prophet Isaiah, the 40th chapter and the 11th verse. The 11th verse in the 40th chapter of the book of the prophet Isaiah. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and shall gently lead those that are with young. I'd perhaps better remind you of the exact context by reading also verses 9 and 10 in this great chapter. O Zion that bringest good tidings, get thee up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem that bringest good tidings, lift up thy voice with strength, lift it up, be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his servant, his reward is with him, and his work before him. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arm, and carry them in his bosom, and shall gently lead those that are with young. We come back, in other words, to a consideration of this extraordinary picture and portrait which is drawn for us here by the prophet Isaiah of the Deliverer, whom God was thus promising to send into this world to rescue and to redeem mankind. We've been considering this great and mighty chapter for a number of Sunday evenings because it is such a perfect summary of the great New Testament message and gospel. Here it was revealed to this man eight centuries before it came to pass. But that is typical and characteristic of prophecy. God was encouraging the hearts of his people to wait for the great day that was to come. And we've been going through it step by step and stage by stage. And all along we have seen one great thing. That the emphasis is centered and placed upon this person who was to come. We've had references to him already. We are told that he is so wonderful that a new highway must be prepared for him in the desert. We are told that when he comes, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. We've been given assurance that though this sounds so impossible, that it's going to happen. And you and I are living in an age and at a time when we know that it has happened. As Isaiah looked forward to it, we look back upon it. And here again in these three verses, this great message is again put before us. The message that is to be delivered is this, Behold your God. And then in these two verses, 10 and 11, we are given this detailed description of him. Now, we have seen that it is a twofold picture. There is one picture in the 10th verse. There is this other picture that we're going to look at tonight in the 11th verse. Now, in the 10th verse that we considered last Sunday evening, the picture is one of great might and of strength and of power. And as we analyzed it, that was the thing that we saw that came out so clearly, that he has his strength and his power in himself, that he has come to deal with certain enemies of mankind, 
He has come to deal with all the forces that are set against us, and he is strong enough to do so, and he has done so. He has dealt with them all, he has vanquished them all, he therefore has manifested his strength and his power, and thereby he has obtained for us eternal redemption. Now that was the picture in verse 10, this mighty conqueror. This one will come with a strong hand and whose arm shall rule for him. This one who has his reward with him and his recompense before him. This one who has mastered and conquered the devil in all his power and has even conquered death and the grave. This mighty conqueror. But here in this 11th verse, we have what seems to be on the surface an entirely different picture. It's a, a picture of great tenderness. It's a picture of one who is gentle and patient and long-suffering and understanding. Now, I must again emphasize this truth because it is such a vital part of the Christian message. I say that on the surface, the picture seems to be different. But it's only on the surface. The two aspects belong to the same person. They are but two sides of the one person. They're both true of him, and it's very wrong, and it's extremely dangerous to forget any one side. If he had not had the strength he had, I wouldn't be able to go on to preach this message that I'm going to give to you tonight. It is only because he is so strong that he can be so tender. The strength is as essential as the tenderness. There are both two sides of this one great being, this Son of God, this Savior of the world. There are two different views which we can take and must take of our Savior and of our Lord. Now, the difference in a sense, you see, is entirely due to this. It depends entirely at whom he's looking. He is one and the same always. But uh, the view you have of him varies with the persons at whom he's looking, or at the problems at which he's looking. As he looks there at Satan and sin and evil and all that is against us, and all that is inimical to God, and all that has brought such ruin into this world, you would almost imagine that he is harsh, and he is certainly strong and mighty as he looks at them. But here, he is looking at us, not at them. He is looking at mankind in its sin, in its shame, in its misery, and in its unhappiness. He is looking towards us. And as he looks towards us, this is what you see. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and shall gently lead those that are with young. You see, he's looking at people who are in need and in suffering, and that is what they see as they truly look at him. Well, now then, I say, let us look at this great picture together. You notice that once more, the great central principle remains exactly the same. There is a sense in which it's perfectly true to say that there's only one great message in the whole of the Bible, and that is just this. It is to tell all to look at him, to look at this person. 
Oh, I've just been reminding you that with this is impressed upon our minds from the very beginning of this chapter. The message is, behold, you are God. That's the good news. That is, of course, Christianity. Christianity is Christ, not morality. Not some scheme for settling international disputes. Nothing like that. Christianity, in its essence, is Christ. He's the beginning. He's the end. No, that isn't my theory. That's the New Testament. He's called the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the ending. He's the all and in all. Everything is in him. And if we have not been looking at him, at the Lord Jesus Christ, well then, we just know nothing about Christianity. Behold your God. Look at him. That's the message everywhere. It's all centered in him. Some may wonder why I go on emphasizing and stressing this, my dear friend. I've but one reason for doing it, and that is that I find that this fatal error, this fatal tendency to think of Christianity as something that you and I've got to do still grips and holds the minds of people and robs them of the blessings of salvation. They don't look at him. They're looking at almost everything but this person, the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet he's the whole of Christianity. And there is no Christian message apart from him. Very well then I say the good news is that he has come. And we must know who he is. We must realize that he is our God. We must realize that it isn't just a man. It isn't just a great teacher who's been thrown out suddenly. It isn't some mighty philosopher who suddenly emerged. No, no. He stands in a category alone. He doesn't belong to this world. He's come into it. That's the fundamental message of Christianity, the incarnation, the coming of the Son of God, the entry of the eternal into time. That's the whole message. Behold your God. If we think that Jesus of Nazareth is only a man, albeit the greatest that the world has ever known, well, it's not Christian. Behold your God, who he is, and then what he's done for us. Well, we considered that again last Sunday night. The enemies he's conquered, especially uh, the great enemy of sin and the law that is against us because of sin and so on, and how he's reconciled us to God, what he does for us. What he is ready to do now and what he will do for us, that's the message. But all along I say the emphasis is upon him because the whole of the Christian salvation is in him. Well, now then, let us work this out in detail. As we do so, may I be permitted this passing remark? Is it not almost impossible to understand how anyone in need can ever reject such a Savior? The Savior depicted in our text tonight. Is it uh, easy to understand and to comprehend how anybody can dismiss the Lord Jesus Christ with an oath or with cursing? And have no use for him. Is it uh, easy to understand how anybody seem, can think of him as someone who seems to be set against us? Who's a hard taskmaster. Whereas the truth about him is precisely what we have recorded in this verse in such a beautiful and in such a pictorial manner. Here is surely a message for all who are tired and weary and sad and broken hearted. All for whom life has just been something that has buffeted them and battered them and has been cruel and unkind to them. Here's the message. May God give us all grace as we come to look at it. Give me grace to 
unfold it and expound it and grace to all who listen to me at this moment. My dear friend, all your difficulties are here solved. All your doubts are here dealt with. All your excuses are here removed. The picture is so glorious, it's so transcendently glorious. I say that if we but truly see it, we shall hurry to avail ourselves of it, to believe it, to accept it, and to submit ourselves to him. Ah, I turned aside like that for a very good reason. You remember what we read together at the beginning in the 10th chapter of the Gospel according to St. John? There was this blessed person pictured in our verse this evening, actually amongst men in this world, speaking to them, telling them all this about himself in his own words as they looked into his face and into his eyes, and as they'd seen him working these miracles of kindness and of compassion. And yet, you see, they, they don't believe it. They don't get it. They feel that he's not plain and that he's not clear. The Jews, these very people to whom he spoke about himself as the good shepherd and as the door of the sheep, they came to him and said, How long dost thou make us to doubt? If thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and he believed not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me, but ye believe not, because ye are not my sheep, as I said unto you. That is why I spoke as I did. The tragedy, the supreme tragedy of mankind and of the world is just this. That though he's come, that all this is true, that men and women still are asking for something and feel that God is withholding something, whereas God has done and has given everything in giving his son. I pray, therefore, that as we look at this glorious picture painted so perfectly in this verse, we may all see him together in a way that we've never seen him before. And especially do I pray that if there's someone here who's never seen him at all, he may see in him tonight the very Savior that he needs in every respect. Fortunately for us, as I've already indicated, this uh, verse of ours in the 11th verse of the 40th chapter of Isaiah has been expounded for us by the Lord himself. There is a perfect exposition of it in the 10th chapter of the Gospel according to St. John. And all I want to do tonight is hurriedly to hold his own picture before you. I want to extract the principles and to hold them up and to underline them. And I want to do so as simply and as directly as I can, because I know that there are people present in this service like these Jews of old. They've heard this message, but they don't see it. They don't believe it. They say they want to. They come and say, put it plainly. Though we put it plainly, still they don't see it. Let us therefore, I say, look at it. What is the first thing we find? Well, the first thing is this. That he talks about a relationship. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. Now, the first thing that is true about a Christian is that he is in a certain relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me put this, first of all, in this way. To be a Christian means that you're in a special relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Did you notice how in this 10th chapter of the Gospel according to John, as our Lord deals with this very matter, he divides up the world into two groups and into two compartments. He talks about those who are my sheep and those who are not my sheep. He divides mankind into these two separate groups. That's the first thing we have to realize. Everybody is not in this relationship to him. Everybody is not a Christian. Everybody in this country is not a Christian. That shows the unutterable folly of talking about Christian countries or Christian nations. There isn't such a thing. You can't divide mankind like that into nationalities and say that that decides whether we are Christian or not. Not at all. Here is the fundamental division and distinction. To be Christian means to be in a particular special relationship to him. In other words, to put it in other language, there is an obvious and a striking difference between a Christian and one who is not a Christian. Now that is absolutely basic to this Bible. You get the distinction in the Old Testament. There was one nation that was the people of God, the other nations were not. Now that's the Old Testament teaching. The children of Israel were God's own peculiar special people. The other nations were not. The other nations were worshipping idols and various other gods. This one people alone was God's people. God's chosen people. Now my friends, whether we like that or not, that's just a fact. It's a fact of history. It is the thing that is emphasized in the Old Testament. The New Testament takes it up in this way. It points out, I say, that there is this striking division and distinction between being Christian and not being Christian. And that is basic to the whole New Testament teaching and position. We're all of us either at this moment Christians or, yet we're not, or, or else we're not Christian. But wait a minute, that's only the first proposition. Let me come to a second. The Christian is not only in this special relationship to Christ, he belongs to him. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. My sheep, he said. Do you notice how he went on repeating that in this 10th chapter of the Gospel according to St. John? They are his sheep in a special sense. And he tells us further that he knows his sheep. He knows them. Uh, now, to know means this, not merely that he has a superficial general acquaintance with them, uh, but he's got a special interest in them. He knows them in that sense that he's taking a personal concern about them. Uh, he goes on to say, indeed, that he knows them uh, by name. He knows us one by one. Uh, to be a Christian, therefore, I say, means uh, to be in this special a personal relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ, which means that he knows me as such. That though he's there, he's seated at the right hand of God in glory, he looks down upon this earth, and he knows me. He knows every single individual Christian, one by one, and by name, and he's taking a personal interest in us. That's of the very essence of this Christian teaching. That, uh, therefore, to be Christian is not uh, to hold certain views and uh, 
to think that that is all, that you hold the views and that you try to put them into practice and to carry them out. No, no. The great thing about being a Christian is that you have come into this relationship to this person who was once on this earth and known as Jesus of Nazareth, who worked as a carpenter, who began to preach at the age of 30, and then uh, was crucified and died and buried and rose again and revealed himself and ascended to heaven and sent down the Holy Ghost. It means that you're in a very definite relationship to him and that he knows you, has got his eye upon you, and he says, that person belongs to me. This is one of my sheep, my personal possession. But then I can go on and tell you another thing about this relationship. He tells us that he brings those who are Christians into this relationship by giving his life for us. That we are his because he's bought us and because he has purchased us. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. But how have they become his flock? What right is he to call them his sheep? How are, how are these people his peculiar flock and possession? The answer is, I say, as he tells us here in this 10th chapter of John, that he has laid down his life for the sheep. That is the profoundest statement of the Christian faith. That all who are Christians who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ have become Christians and are his peculiar possession because he has bought them by dying for their sins on the cross on Calvary's hill. Now that is something that you'll find constantly stated in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul writes to the church at Corinth. They had become guilty of certain sins. He says, don't do that. He says, you have no right to do that. He says, ye are not your own. Ye have been bought with a price. You have no right to do as you like with yourselves, says Paul. The Lord Jesus Christ has died for you, and thereby he has paid the purchase price of you and of your soul. The Apostle Peter reminds us, that we have been redeemed not by gold or silver or by metals, but by the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without spot and without blemish. And our Lord, I say, has said it all before his servants had ever thought of it. He says, this is the thing that characterizes me as the good shepherd, that I lay down my life for the sheep. He has died for us. And it is because of that that he owns us and that we belong to him. That's the relationship. The Christian is a man then who has been moved from one position to another. He used to belong to the world. He no longer belongs to the world. He belongs to Christ. He used to belong in a sense to himself. He no longer belongs to himself. I live, says Paul, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. I am not my own. That's the statement. I was my own. I owned my own life and I claimed a right to it. And I was the master of my own fate. I said with a poet, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And I said, I dictate my own life and I'm going to do what I want to do. I don't care what God has said. I don't care what anybody says. What I want is supreme. I'm my own master. It's my own life and I have a right to do as I please with it. But a Christian doesn't speak like that. 
A Christian realizes that he has no longer any right to himself and he doesn't want to have right to himself. He thanks God that he is in God's hands in Christ, that Christ has taken hold of him, that he belongs to him, that he is one of his sheep, he belongs to his flock. He's finished with this self and self-centeredness. He's centered upon Christ, who has loved him, even to the extent of dying for him and shedding his blood for his soul. That, I say, is the way in which this relationship becomes possible. It is because he's loved us and has given himself for us. And thereby he has a right to us, and we belong to him. But before I leave with this consideration of this peculiar relationship in which the Christian finds himself to the Lord... I must emphasize what is true on our side. That is what is true on his side. Let me show you what's true on our side. What is the characteristic of the relationship from the side of the sheep? Well, he tells us. It is this, that his sheep hear his voice. And they know it. They know not the voice of strangers, but they know his voice. He keeps on saying that, doesn't he? He says, the characteristic of my sheep is that they recognize my voice and they listen to it and they follow me. They won't listen to the voice of strangers and they won't follow them because they know what that's going to lead to. They've been doing that before. They got into misery. They became strayed sheep. They became unhappy. They were in the wilderness of this world. But they don't know that they don't want that any longer. They know that voice. They know my voice. And they come after me and they belong to me. I wonder whether we're all plain and clear about this. The Christian is one who recognizes the Lord Jesus Christ and his vice, which being interpreted or put in a more doctrinal form, we can put like this. A Christian is a man who has known and has believed and accepted the truth about this person. The Christian first and foremost is, of course, a man who knows that Jesus of Nazareth was indeed the only begotten Son of God. He has seen the truth of this message which says, Behold your God. Now think of many men in the world. They have heard of Jesus of Nazareth, but they say he's only a man. They don't know him, you see. The Apostle Paul tells us that when Christ was here on earth, that even the princes of this world didn't know him. For had they known him, he says, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The great men of the world, they rejected him. They said, who is this fellow, this carpenter? They didn't believe he was the Son of God, though he was the Son of God. They didn't know him. The Christian, by definition, is a man who knows him. He knows the truth about him. He knows that God has so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son into it. He knows more than that. He knows that the Son came in order to do this work that he did so perfectly upon the cross. The Christian is a man who knows that he himself is a sinner and that he cannot deliver himself. Try as he will. He knows he cannot. He knows that he has not obeyed God's law. He knows that he's had a hatred in his heart of God, that he's always ready to misunderstand God and what God has done and what God has said. He's an enemy, he's a rebel against God, and he knows that there's no greater sin than that. He doesn't measure sin so much in actions, he measures it in his attitude towards God. He hasn't lived to glorify God, he hasn't lived that God may be supreme. He knows he's a sinner and that he deserves punishment. 
so that when Christ tells him that he has come to seek and to save that which is lost, he isn't annoyed with him. He is grateful to him. Do you know there was nothing that so annoyed people about the Lord Jesus Christ as when he said that he'd come to seek and to save them? Do you remember that extraordinary example of that in the 8th chapter of John's Gospel? There were certain people who listened to our Lord one afternoon and they rather liked what he was saying. For we are told that as he spake these words, many believed on him. Then he looked at these people who just said that they believed on him and said, If he continue in my word, then are he my disciples indeed. And he shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. And they shouted out, Amen and Hallelujah. Not at all. They stood back aghast and upon their dignity. And they said, We be Abraham's seed, and were never in bondage to any men. How sayest thou, Ye shall be made free? We don't want your proffered freedom, they said. We've never been slaves. They didn't realize that as they were speaking, they were slaves of sin. And slaves of the devil, and slaves of self, and slaves of the world. Ah, but that's it, you see. The Christian is a man who has known that he's a sinner. And when he sees that Christ has come into the world to save him, and to redeem him, and to rescue him from the wrath of God and the just deserts, of his ill deeds and of his enmity against God. Far from being annoyed by the cross, far from feeling an offense in the cross, far from hating the cross and stumbling at it as the Jews did. He says, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my riches gain, I count but loss and poor contempt. On all my pride. It's the glorious cross to him. Why he knows Christ. He recognizes him as the son of God. The savior of his soul. The one who's died to set him free. My sheep know my voice. They hear it. They listen to it. And they follow after him. That is the thing that determines the relationship on their side. Shall I put it like this therefore? The Christian is a man who is in a special relationship to Christ. Yes, and he knows it. He is not uncertain about it. He can tell you why he is a Christian. He can tell you how he has become a Christian. He can tell you what's made him a Christian. The Christian, my friends, is not in this position. He doesn't say, well, I've been unhappy for a long time and I've been looking for something and I believe that somehow Christ can do it for me. That doesn't make you a Christian, my friend. No, no. The Christian knows him. He knows the truth about him. He knows that he's come and did come into the world to die for him, the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. My sheep hear my voice. They know it. They'll follow me. They come after me. My friend, let me ask you before we go any further. Do you know him? Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your own personal Savior and Redeemer? Do you know that the Son of God has loved you and has died for you upon that cross? The sheep know me, he says. My sheep know my voice. They must do because of the relationship. Any vagueness, any uncertainty, therefore, any hoping that you may, it means that you're not Christian. My sheep know my voice. They are in that relationship. Let me hurry on. 
The second thing I would call your attention to is the provision that he makes for those who are in this relationship. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. The word feed means tend, and it's a comprehensive word that includes everything. He will do all for them that they can ever need. He will tend his sheep. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. What does he do for them? Well, as he points out himself in this 10th chapter of John's Gospel, the first thing he does is to give them life. He says here, you remember in a striking contrast, I am the door, by me if any man enter in he shall be saved, and he shall go in and out and find pasture. The thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Oh, that I may be able to put this simply and plainly. The first thing the Lord Jesus Christ does to you and for you is to give you new life. His own life, this life more abundant. Oh, how vital this is. My friends, you must start with this realization that Christianity comes as a gift. It isn't an exhortation to us to start doing something which is impossible. That would be to damn us. The first statement of Christianity is that Christ has come to give us life. A new life, his own life. Everything that life means and connotes and represents. And it is a pure gift. Oh, how careful our Lord was himself to explain this and to expand this because people would keep on misunderstanding it. You see, the trouble with us all by nature is that we think we must understand something before we can benefit by it. And when Christ comes and says, I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly, we say, we don't know what you mean by that. What do you mean by giving us life? How can he give us life? I say, he gives you a life which is new, which is spiritual, which is miraculous, and which you cannot understand. But don't trouble about the understanding. That was the mistake of Nicodemus, wasn't it? Our Lord said to him, verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. He repeats it, you must be born, he says, of water and of the Spirit. And the great Nicodemus says, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb? He says, I don't understand this. You say, you'll give me life. How can you give me life? How can I have life at my age? Can I go back and be born again? I don't understand. Don't try to, said our Lord to him. Don't try to. I am not asking you to understand, I am asking you to receive it. The wind bloweth where it listeth, thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh, nor whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. You no more understand this than you'll understand the wind. You don't see it, you see its effects. So in that way is every one that is born of the Spirit. It's the gift of Christ. Don't try to understand it, believe him that he'll give it you. He'll give you a new beginning, a new start, a new nature, a new life. He'll give you something of his own divine nature. Don't understand, don't try to believe it, accept it, receive it. That's his message. Don't you remember how he said exactly the same thing to the woman of Samaria? Whosoever, he says, will draw of this water, pointing to the well that was there beside them, shall thirst again. But whosoever shall drink of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. That's it. 
You don't understand. No, no one does. I don't. But here it is. This is his truth. He gives life. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. You remember our picture of the poor lost sheep in the wilderness? No food to eat, dogs, wolves, harassing, running, kept trotting round about, thin and exhausted in the wilderness of life, and tired out and dying. And the first thing he gives to such a soul is life. New life and vigor and strength and power. But not only that, food and sustenance. Did you notice how he puts it? He shall go in and out and find pasture. You can't desire more than that. He gives us all the food and all the sustenance that we need. Everything that is necessary to keep this life that he's given us going. What does he give us? Well, here is this word. With its teaching and its understanding. And it's enough for time and for eternity. Do you want intellectual food? Well, come to the Bible, my friend. Here it will tell you about God and about men, about life and death and eternity. Do you want to know how to live? Here it is. Do you want to understand contemporary history? Come and read it and its prophecies and how it's all being fulfilled even today. Food. Understanding, I say, and ability and insight. It's here without end. Guidance and leading. Wisdom. Fellowship with others. Joy and happiness and peace. It's all given. This is the testimony of God's people throughout the centuries. It still is today. That him puts it so perfectly just as I am. Without one plea. Yes, it tells us that we come seeking health, healing, riches of the mind. Yea, all I need in thee to find. O Lamb of God, I come. Another one puts it like this. Praise my soul, the King of heaven, to his feet. Thy tribute bring. Why? Well, here's the answer. Ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. Who like me his praise should sing. The food, the sustenance, the abundance. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. My sheep shall go in and out and find pasture, and there'll always be an abundance. He leadeth me beside the still waters into the green pastures. He restores my soul. He prepares a table for me. Think of the images. There they are, and how true they are. That is something that every Christian verifies. When you come to Christ and become a Christian, you are not only conscious of this new life, you are conscious of a sense of satisfaction. I say tonight to the glory of God and of my Savior, there is nothing that I know of, that I can think of, that I can imagine, but that I find it, and more than find it all in him. He's enough. He's more than enough. He's the all and in all. He is fully satisfied. I care not whether your main need, as I say, is intellectual or emotional, philosophical, let it be what it may. You come truly to Christ and live on him and live by him and be led by him, and I'll assure you that his own word is absolutely true, that if you come to him and drink, you will never thirst again. He said, him that cometh unto me, shall never hunger and never thirst. 
I don't care what may happen to you. I don't care what problems will come into your life. I don't care what disasters may overwhelm you. You will be able to say with the Apostle Paul, I have learned in whatsoever state I am therein to be content. I know both how to be a boast and how to abound. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Food, pasture. Go in and out and find pasture. And then think of his care for us. We are told in the picture in Isaiah that he will take the young and gather them into his arm and carry them in his bosom. Oh, how I thank God for this. It's a picture of a shepherd helping the young newly born lambs. And how full of comfort it is. You may be a young Christian here tonight. You may be someone just starting in this Christian faith. My friend, you need have no worry about your weakness nor about your ignorance. He knows all about you. He knows us one by one. He calls us by name. He is the good shepherd that is aware of the position of the young. And when he sees you faltering and failing, he'll take hold of you with his arm and he'll carry you in his bosom. He knows all about your ignorance. He knows all about your weakness. Young converts need have no fear. I've been talking to you about the intellectual wealth of this book. And you perhaps will go tonight and start reading Paul's epistle to the Colossians. And you'll say, what's all this about? I don't understand it. You may come and listen to preaching on a Sunday morning, expounding these great epistles. And you'll say, I don't understand, I don't follow. And you'll tend to give up in despair. Don't. He knows all about you. Leave yourself in his hands. He'll bear with you. He'll carry you. And a day will come when you'll find you know much more than you thought. Leave it to him. He knows all about us. That's the essence of the picture. He, the good shepherd, he knows that certain people are young and he takes hold of them. Oh, let me put it in this form. The great Hudson Taylor, the founder of the China-England mission, used to tell us that the right way to translate the text that is translated, have faith in God, is this. Instead of saying, have faith in God, he said this. Trust the faithfulness of God. It means this, you see. He doesn't put the emphasis on your faith and say that you've got to hold on desperately to God. He says, no, put it the other way around. Have faith in the faithfulness of God. So that you're like a little child, you see, who's been running about all day and comes home tired at night. And he's so tired that he doesn't know what he wants, whether he wants food or not. He's too tired almost to go to sleep. And there he is, he doesn't know what to do. And at last he falls into the arms of his father or his mother. And he just forgets everything and sleeps. Why, he has this faith in the faithfulness of his father and his mother. He abandons himself knowing that they love him. He stops thinking. He just lets himself go safe in their arms. That's it. Hold on to the faithfulness of God. Believe, my friend, when you don't understand that he knows all about you and that he's committed to take care of you. He's promised it. Indeed, we have this New Testament testimony to the truth of this. You remember what the Apostle Paul says in writing to the Corinthians? He says, he see your calling, brethren, how not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world. The first Christians were slaves. 
Not many of the mighty, not many of the great slaves. Ordinary, ignorant, illiterate, common people. And yet they were in the kingdom and they began to enjoy these things. Where did they have their learning? They knew no philosophy. It wasn't necessary. He has it all. They trusted him. He gave them the gift of his Holy Spirit. And they began to understand these things that are freely given to us of God. The young need not be daunted. He knows all about us. He'll gather you with his arm and carry you in his bosom. Trust him. He's pledged to look after you. He's died for you, so he's certain to keep you in life. And then his gentleness to those that are weak and those that are burdened. That is put in this way, isn't it? The bruised reed he will not break. And the smoking flax he will not quench. He knows that those who are either still with young or who have just produced their young, they can't walk very quickly. He knows all about it and he'll lead them very gently. Has the world ever known anyone so gentle as this Son of God who came into the world? He was called the friend of publicans and sinners, the correct Moral, merely religious people hated him for it. They said, look at him. A gluttonous man and a wine-bibber. A friend of publicans and sinners, yes. When the world spat upon the publican, he sat down by the side of the publican. He'd come to save them. And when they brought to him a woman caught in the very act of adultery and were condemning her, He didn't condemn her, he forgave her and gave her strength to go back and live a good life. That's the characteristic of this blessed Savior. The bruised reed he will not break and the smoking flax he will not quench. I may be addressing someone at this moment who is like a bruised reed or a smoking flax. The world may have trodden upon you and trampled upon you and hurt you and bruised you and you're broken and scarcely able to breathe. There may be just that little spark and remnant of life that produces nothing but smoke. He won't despise you. He knows all about you. Was there ever kindest shepherd Half so tender as this one. No, no, there wasn't. He had an eye of compassion. He never passed a case of suffering. He always saw the true need. And there was no sinner too desperate for him to go and speak to and to raise up. He's come to do it. He says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. They that are whole have no need of a physician, but they that are sick. My dear friend, the world may regard you as an outcast, but Christ loves you and has given his life for you. Oh, the gentleness, the love, the sympathy, the tenderness, and the understanding. So though you may be regarded as an outcast and condemned as a hopeless case, even by your nearest and dearest, as well as by the world, I tell you, he knows all about you, will never hurt you, but we'll deal with you and handle you in the gentlest manner possible according to your very condition. And finally, he protects us, he gives us security, 
He tells us here in these striking, glorious words, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Thank God for this. He'll guard us, he'll protect us, he'll guide us, he'll never leave us nor forsake us. He'll answer all our needs, will never fail us, in life nor in death. It doesn't matter what happens, I say, he will always be with us. Here's the word. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more shall we be saved by his life? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? I am persuaded, therefore, that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He'll be with you in life, he'll be with you in death, he'll be with you forever in eternity. That's the message. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the young in his arm and carry them in his bosom. And he will gently lead those that are with young. You may feel you understand nothing, you know nothing. My dear friend, it doesn't matter. It's all in him. He'll give you life, he'll give you food, he'll give you strength, he'll give you all the protection you need, all that you can ever desire. He gives it all, and he'll go on giving it until finally he has presented you perfect and faultless in the presence of God in eternity. My dear friend, do you know his voice? Have you heard him? Do you recognize who he is? Do you belong to him? Are you one of his sheep? My sheep hear my voice, he said. Have you heard him? Are you following him? Because if you've heard his voice, you're following him. Now, this is the test. If you really believe all I've been saying, there's only one thing. It's inevitable, isn't it? You realize that the world has ruined you and would continue to do so. He saves. Very well, you turn your back on the world. You hate it. You look to him, you give yourself to him, you say, protect me, keep me. You don't want that. You hate that now. You follow him. You go where he wants you to go, into his glorious pastures. And you've lost your taste for the world and all that belongs to it. That's the test. Have you heard him? Are you ready to say at this moment, I hear thy gentle voice that calls me, Lord, to thee for cleansing in thy precious blood that flowed on Calvary.